Hello, folks. Welcome to the November 2021 edition of First Thursday. My name is Will Aitchison, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we talk about, I swore I was not going to do this, but I am. We're going to talk about vaccination, and we're going to talk about nothing but vaccination. Uh, and that's a product of a couple of things. First of all, uh, this last month has been an incredibly light crop of cases out there. I've been through them, and there's just not that much of national significance in the uh, court decisions that have come down and arbitrators' decisions. But boy, has there been a lot of action on the vaccination front. Uh, and we've got vaccination deadlines now that have come and have gone. Uh, we have litigation all over the country. And every day, every day, we get a new decision from some part of the country on the legality of a mandatory vaccination program. Uh, and I've, I've been talking with some people over the last day who are up in Alaska where there are no mandatory vaccination programs. And the number one topic on their mind was, What's going on with mandatory vaccination? Uh, so I figured I'd take the time and go through what the common questions are about vaccination programs in, in public safety and describe for you how the various litigation is coming out. Uh, we have an attachment that I'd like you to take a look at. You can download it from the uh, show notes. What it is is a table that I am maintaining, maintaining it on a daily basis of uh, the results in vaccine litigation, mandatory vaccination program litigation. Uh, and what this table is aimed at is looking at the court decisions that are hopefully, not all, but hopefully of general applicability, uh, meaning that the rules from these cases could come out of any case in any part of the country. Now, there are some cases in this table. There are three in this table uh, that don't have general applicability. For example, one turns on a local Louisiana statute that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Uh, but most of the cases, you could expect these results to obtain wherever you are. You will see on this 31-page single-space table. Get ready. It's going to be a lot of fun. You will see a total of 53 cases that have been decided almost all within uh, the last two months, the months of September and October. There's one November case on there. Of those 53 cases, uh, three of them are the narrow type of case that I was describing. Uh, and by narrow type of case that I was describing, that means they involve local rules that aren't likely to apply everywhere else. The other 50 cases on the table are decisions of general applicability from uh, a potpourri of federal and state courts from around the country. And I'm not going to tease you any longer. Here's the scorecard on those 50 cases of general applicability. The scorecard is 50 to 0. 50 cases, all of them, uphold the legality of vaccine mandates. Now, there are some other cases on, on the table, as I say, that have very, these ones that have narrow applicability. There are some cases that don't, in, that involve more procedural questions, for example, like bargaining questions, uh, and uh, don't involve the question of the legality of a program. But where it comes down to is this program constitutional? Does it comply with Title VII? Does it comply with the Food and Drug Administration's emergency use authorization statutes? That scorecard is 50 to 0. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But first of all, let's look at the numbers a bit. What is going on with vaccine mandates uh, from uh, around the country. What are we seeing in terms of public safety employees who are either complying or not complying with these vaccine mandates? And uh, uh, I'll tell you, we've seen some 
a very, very definite trend on this issue. And the trend that we see is that when a public employer announces a vaccine mandate, pretty much immediately there is a great deal of resistance to the mandate. Uh, and labor organizations say that they are going to file lawsuits. Individual employees say they are going to file lawsuits. Some employees will go out and make uh, YouTube videos. Uh, sometimes those YouTube videos uh, are, are comprised of that employee in the act of resigning. There's a very famous uh, YouTube video involving a Washington State Patrol trooper from Yakima who resigns on the air and ends with a negative statement about his governor. You see this high degree of resistance to vaccine uh, mandates. But then once you come up against the edge of the mandate, once courts have held in this jurisdiction or maybe elsewhere uh, that a vaccine mandate is legal, or perhaps employees are taking a look at making that final decision of, can I get vaccinated? Or do I want to face the potential loss, not just of my job, but maybe my career and my defined benefit retirement system payments? Uh, employees are choosing to get vaccinated. And we, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, we saw it with two of the cities that had the first vaccine mandates in the country, uh, the city of Honolulu and the city of Denver. In Honolulu, uh, with uh, slightly more than 2,000 police officers, I don't know the fire numbers, uh, but the early projections were that there would be hundreds of police officers who would forfeit their jobs to the vaccine mandate. And Honolulu had a program where if you were not vaccinated by a certain date, and they extended the date uh, to allow for additional compliance, but if you weren't vaccinated by a certain date, you'd get a five-day suspension. And if you hadn't started down the road towards vaccination at the end of five days, then you'd face termination. So when the anticipated date came, everybody was sort of holding their breath. Are we going to lose hundreds of Honolulu police officers? Because Honolulu cannot afford to lose hundreds of police officers. And in the end, it turned out only one officer uh, served a five-day suspension. And when he was done with that five-day suspension, and he's uh, one of these officers who made a YouTube video saying, I will never do it, uh, he changed his mind. Uh, Denver had very much the same situation. Denver had an early compliance date. It was around September 1, but it was a bit of a fuzzy date. Uh, and ended up getting internally extended a little bit. Uh, with Denver, there were predictions that, as well, there'd be hundreds of police officers and firefighters who would give up their jobs to a vaccine mandate. And now Denver's compliance is up in the high 90% rate. Um, the big cities in the country right now where you hear uh, the most debate, I'm going to tell you about four of them, are New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Uh, let's talk about all of them. In uh, New York, there have been lawsuits that have been filed by the police unions and the fire unions. There have been demonstrations that have been held. Uh, uh, some firefighters took a rig uh, out to a state representative who actually didn't have anything to do with the city mandate uh, and engaged in actions that the fire department is now calling threatening and has suspended them. There's been a, a lot of action in New York on the vaccine mandate. The current status right now is that 91% of New York City's 378,000 employees, get that, 378,000 employees, 91% of them are vaccinated. Police are 85% vaccinated in New York City. Firefighters less than police, we tend to see that more and more with firefighters less than police. That's surprising, I think, to a bunch of us. Uh, firefighters are 77% compared to the police, 85%. EMS personnel, they're in a separate union there, 88%. 
I think the biggest worry for a number of citizens in New York was how many of the garbage truck drivers were going to get vaccinated because the garbage truck drivers were among the most resistant groups uh, to begin with. They're now at 83 percent. And the lowest is in corrections. In corrections, uh, only 63% of the employees have been vaccinated. That's up from 51% in the last two weeks, but it is still nowhere near compliance. And, and this puts New York City on a collision course with a very, very serious problem. New York City Corrections is horribly understaffed. Uh, and the working conditions in New York's correctional facilities, particularly Rikers Island, are, are so terrible. And the living conditions for the inmates are so terrible that uh, it's, it's just clear things have to change. New York cannot afford to lose any more corrections officers. What is going to happen in the upcoming weeks? We, we just simply don't know. What about Chicago? There's been litigation in Chicago. There's been a recent decision on bargaining that I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, In Chicago, there's less reliable uh, vaccination rate figures uh, because there's kind of massive noncompliance with the registration system that Chicago is using to determine whether or not employees are vaccinated. It appears the most recent numbers I've seen and these change daily, is that 57% of police are vaccinated, but only 70% have registered their status. Can we infer that the other 30% who haven't uh, registered uh, are non-compliant? Maybe, maybe not. There are people who have independent reasons for objecting to the registration process, so we don't quite know. So police are at 57%. Uh, Firefighters are at 68%. A lot more of them have registered their status, uh, 86%. Uh, And uh, there's no correctional, city correctional facility in Chicago, so we don't have that data. In uh, Los Angeles, we thought we'd be looking initially at an October 1 mandatory compliance date. The city has now extended that to December 18th. Uh, both sides, all sides are in bargaining over it, but there's also lawsuits that has, have been filed. Uh, so the Los Angeles Police Protective League, for example, has filed a lawsuit against the city over the choice of contractor uh, that is being used for the uh, vaccination registration system, uh, a different sort of lawsuit. San Francisco had a fairly early uh, vaccination deadline. And it looked for a while that there was going to be very significant noncompliance. The first registration numbers showed 54% of employees uh, were vaccinated. But the most current numbers, and these are about five days old now, is that 98% of San Francisco employees are vaccinated. So there's that trend that you see. Uh, and, you know, you see it in New York, you see it in Chicago. Uh, uh, to a lesser extent in Chicago, and you certainly uh, have seen it in San Francisco. And that's been the case in a lot of different places. It's not universal, uh, and there can be uh, kind of outside influences on that trend. Uh, And the biggest case that is setting up for a fight, and watch this one, folks, is down in Los Angeles County. In Los Angeles County, the Board of Supervisors has uh, established a a vaccine mandate and has implemented the policy uh, and implemented the policy without the completion of the bargaining process. The parties are in impasse there. And that policy calls for termination. Well, the Los Angeles County Sheriff, who is a constitutional officer under California law, has said, I'm not going to terminate anybody. I think the choice of whether to get vaccinated is the employees. It's a personal one. And this sets up this battle between the sheriff and the board of supervisors as to who has the authority to make the ultimate decision on noncompliance with a mandatory vaccination rule. Is it going to be the sheriff or is it going to be the board of supervisors? 
And what that does, if you think about it, is it puts the unions, and there are two unions that represent sheriff's department employees, two major ones, puts the unions in a horrible position because what are their members supposed to do? Are they supposed to take the board of supervisors seriously or the sheriff seriously? Uh, and are they supposed to put themselves in the position where potentially they risk their jobs because of this political fight between the sheriff and the board of supervisors? And by the way, this is a political fight that's been going on for two years now since the sheriff was elected, two or three years, I forget which. And they fight about everything and they sue each other and all sorts of things like that. It's just a terrible situation there. Uh, and the unions have to take the position that, look, however... You guys, the Board of Supervisors and the Sheriff, how, however you guys work this thing out, our employees, our members can't be casualties of your political fight. Straighten out who's in charge here. If you have to go to a lawsuit, you go to a lawsuit before you take any disciplinary action against an employee. So that'll be a very interesting one to watch. Uh, and I actually don't know of uh, any cases right now that have addressed that sort of issue. It's just kind of a bizarre issue. Now on to the lawsuits, and uh, let's talk about the lawsuits and how are they turning out. Uh, and I'm going to do this through a series of questions. Uh, these are the sorts of questions whenever I give a talk about vaccination that I hear from members of the audience. And, uh, and there are, there's so much misinformation out there about the whole, uh, the whole vaccination issue in general, but in particular about the law of mandatory vaccination programs. Uh, that I thought it would be helpful to ask a number of these questions uh, and answer them in the context of this podcast. Uh, so the, the first one I'm going to ask is, do any of the lawsuits raise an argument that uh, I've got the right to bodily integrity? I've got the right to privacy uh, and any uh, system that forces me to undergo medical treatment, which vaccination is, violates my constitutional right to bodily integrity and my constitutional right to privacy. Do any of the cases address that argument? And the answer is just about all of them address that argument. And uh, the, uh, the litigation here, you've heard me talk about this in prior podcasts, goes back to 1905 in a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in this case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where there was a mandatory vaccination program, uh, and it was under the auspices of the state of Massachusetts. It wasn't, of course, COVID vaccination. It was smallpox vaccination. And you had a minister who objected to it. Um, and if you objected to it and you, you did not comply with the mandatory vaccination rule, you could be fined $5. That's a lot of money in today's dollars. I haven't done the conversion yet, but I bet it's at least in the hundreds of dollars, if not the thousands. Uh, and if you didn't pay the fine, you could actually end up in jail. So uh, this vaccine mandate in Massachusetts was much broader than any of the ones that we are talking about here. It wasn't tied into just people who had certain jobs. And uh, there were no exemptions for people with medical conditions uh, or uh, religious exemptions. If you were an adult, you had to be vaccinated. And the U.S. Supreme Court had to decide whether or not there was a constitutional right to be free from vaccination. And the court began by answering this question. And uh, this was a seven to two decision, by the way, of the Supreme Court. The court began by answering this question by saying, well, what constitutional rights could be involved here? And the court said, well, there's an easy answer. And it is the Constitution's guarantee of liberty. 
And we find that, by the way, in two constitutional amendments. We find that in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution and the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, That government may not impact somebody's life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These are called liberty rights. And the Supreme Court in Jacobson recognized that uh, a com- that compulsory, compulsory medical treatment uh, w- did have an impact on somebody's liberty rights, and that uh, any uh, impact on somebody's bodily integrity had some liberty rights implications. And so how does the court resolve the issue? And the court says, look, we know you, the reverend in this case, we know you have a liberty right to be free from invasions of your bodily integrity. But it's not an absolute right. And it is a right that has to be balanced against government's interests. So what's government's interest? Government's interest was at the time controlling the smallpox pandemic. And uh, the court, in an opinion written by one of the greatest of all Supreme Court justice, uh, justices, uh, Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan, he was known as the great dissenter for some of his dissenting opinions, uh, Justice Harlan writes that uh, there are times when the exercise of somebody's individual liberty right will harm the liberty of fellow citizens. And that is true in a pandemic where you have the ability to infect other people. So how are we going to judge these cases, Justice Harlan asks. And Justice Harlan says, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to get into the science uh, issues because that's not for us. We're judges. We're not scientists. We're not going to get into the public health implications of this. We're not public health experts. What we are going to do is say that if there is a rational basis for public health officials deciding that there is A, a pandemic, and B, the need for vaccination to control the pandemic, we're not going to second guess that. Now, Justice Harlan didn't actually use the phrase rational basis. Um, That comes about later in the development of our jurisprudence, but he used words that were the equivalent of it. Uh, He said, we're just simply not going to second guess public health officials who are making reasonable judgments. So what about that? Why did I use that phrase, rational basis? Uh, And it's going to become very, very important in the cases, the vaccination cases decided in the last two months. Uh, When courts look at the constitutionality of governmental action, when they're looking at whether the government violates First Amendment free speech rights or Fifth Amendment due process rights or Fourteenth or Amendment liberty rights, whatever they might be, courts have to use some legal test to evaluate, to balance government's interests against individual interests. And courts have ended up with this tiered system of review. They will say, look, If whatever this is, this governmental action is, if this affects a fundamental right under the Constitution, government is going to have to show a compelling reason for its actions. So that's that's kind of tier one, fundamental right. With those cases, courts say, we use a test we call strict scrutiny. Government is going to have to have a very, very good, almost overwhelming reason for its action uh, 
and it's going to have to act as carefully and as narrowly as it possibly can. We are going to very closely scrutinize government's actions. While strict scrutiny is only applied to very few constitutional rights, most notably freedom of speech uh, is, is, I think, the, the clearest one where strict scrutiny applies. Um, and it is not generally applied to liberty rights under the Constitution. That's the strict scrutiny test. Now, there's another place where courts will apply the strict scrutiny analysis, and that's where someone is in a protected class. And by protected class, I mean very specifically classes that are lined out in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, race, national origin, uh, religion. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, uh, sex or gender is not lined out like that, and that's an, a very different level of review, but that's subject to another podcast, another case, another day, because it doesn't involve vaccination. So the first thing that these courts ask when they're looking at these vaccination cases is, is there a fundamental right that is involved, or do we have somebody who is in a protected class? And if not, courts will apply what's called the rational basis test. And the rational basis test is very simply stated this. If there is any rational basis for government to do whatever it is it has done, we're going to uphold government's decision. Government doesn't even necessarily have to be right there could be competing arguments, but so long as the choice that the government made was rational, we are going to up, uphold it. I, I listened to a podcast, I want to say about 10 days ago. It was done by the dean of the University of California at Berkeley Law School, a guy named uh, Urban uh, Chemerinsky. I'm probably pronouncing both his first and his last name incorrectly. Uh, my apologies to the professor. He's one of the country's leading experts on constitutional law. And uh, he was talking about vaccination and the Constitution. And he said uh, that these cases are going to be won or lost on whether or not the rational basis test is applied. And in fact, cases are won or lost on the basis of not just vaccination cases, any cases. Uh, he said, I can count on the number of fingers of one hand the number of cases decided since 1930 where government has lost in the Supreme Court on the rational basis test. Once a court decides, this is me now, not the professor. Uh, once a court decides it's going to apply the rational basis test, the vaccination cases are over. And we see that all the time. So here's a good example for you. And I'm going to read you from some court opinions so you get the, f the flavor of these uh, uh, court opinions. And this one is uh, one that's called Messina versus New Jersey. And this is an October 14th opinion from a federal court. Uh, and the court uh, ends up uh, talking at some length about the Jacobson case. All of these opinions talk at some length about the uh, Jacobson case. And the court ends up saying, look, given, and I'm quoting here, Given the Supreme Court precedent and persuasive authorities from other courts on this issue, the courts find that the plaintiffs, the ones challenging the vaccine mandate, fail to establish that they would have any likelihood of success on the merits. The court rejects the plaintiff's ill-fated effort to circumvent well-established Supreme Court precedent by recategorizing the COVID-19 vaccinations as gene therapy products. Um, and that's an argument you see in about half a dozen of these cases. It has not yet prevailed. 
Although plaintiffs have a right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, this right is not absolute. That sounds like it's right out of Jacobson, doesn't it? But it's being written by a New Jersey judge two weeks ago. Given the severity of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and number of COVID-19 related deaths in New Jersey, there is a real and substantial relation between the mandate and the need to protect public health. That's all you need, a real and substantial relationship between the measure that government took, in this case, mandatory vaccination, and the threat. There's a case from a week earlier uh, called Norris versus Stanley, and you'll find all these cases in your table. Uh, and this is one where employees, uh, excuse me, this uh, is not, em- yeah, these were employees. They're, they're both employees and student cases here uh, that I have mixed together into the end uh, of the table because the same constitutional provisions apply to both of them. Uh, so in this one, the plaintiffs uh, are looking for a preliminary injunction to stop the application of the vaccine mandate. Uh, and listen to the court. Although plaintiff advocates that strict scrutiny should apply because Michigan State University's vaccine policy violates her fundamental rights to privacy and bodily integrity under the 14th Amendment. You know now where all those terms came from, right? I've just described it to you. Jacobson and the different standards of review, you see it playing out here. Strict scrutiny, plaintiffs want strict scrutiny to apply. Uh, Plaintiffs are arguing, got a fundamental right, you know where that term comes from, to privacy and bodily integrity. Let me finish the sentence. The court says, this argument is without merit. Plaintiff is absolutely correct that she possesses those rights, but there's no fundamental right to decline a vaccination. She does not have a constitutionally protected interest in her job at Michigan State University, which her own lawyer conceded. The MSU vaccine policy does not force plaintiff to forego her rights to privacy and bodily autonomy. And here comes the second half of this sentence is something that so many of these courts say, and that I hope that every public safety employee who is on the fence about complying with a vaccine mandate hears. Read the first half of the sentence again. The vaccine policy doesn't force plaintiff to forego her rights to privacy and bodily autonomy, but if she chooses not to be vaccinated, she does not have the right to work at Michigan State University at the same time. And you see that message time and time again. No one's forcing you to get vaccinated. You just can't hold this job and be unvaccinated. Okay, so that's the bodily integrity uh, argument. It's being raised in all of these cases, and it has been unanimously rejected by the courts. What's the next argument you see from time to time? You see an equal protection argument. Equal, uh, you know, all of us are entitled to equal protection of the laws, uh, and that guarantee is found in the 14th Amendment. It uses that exact phrase, equal protection. How are courts looking at this argument? Well, uh, you see two types of arguments here that are being made. And one argument is, uh, look, a mandatory vaccination program sets up two classes of individuals those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated. And when you have two classes of individuals, that's a potential violation of the Equal Protection Clause. So how are courts looking at that particular argument? So here's a decision uh, from October 21st uh, from a, a federal court down in South Carolina. Uh, I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences out of this one. The court says, plaintiffs argue that the policies violate their right to equal protection because they treat vaccinated people differently than unvaccinated people, including those who have natural immunity. I'll come back to the natural immunity argument in just a moment. Back to the court. 
plaintiffs fail to articulate how their employers' differential treatments of vaccinated and unvaccinated personnel is irrational. What's the court saying? We're not buying into the argument that vaccination status is a protected class that justifies the application of strict scrutiny. All that's needed, when the court is using that word irrational, all that's needed is a rational basis. And what's the rational basis? The court just gives us one sentence and then moves on to dismiss the lawsuit. One sentence, as of August 2021, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, reported that unvaccinated individuals have a 6.1 times greater risk of testing positive for COVID-19 and an 11.3 times greater risk of dying. And that's where the court ends, the discussion of the issue. It's like a mic drop in a court opinion. That's all we need to meet the rational taste basis test. Now, I told you there were kind of two categories of these equal protection cases. Uh, the second one uh, actually does have a race-based component to it. Uh, there's a, a case out of New York City. It's called Dixon versus de Blasio. Uh, and this one is from October 12th. Uh, and this is one where the argument was that uh, the, the impact of vaccination policies or not vaccination, not being, being vaccinated or not being vaccinated, falls disproportionately on the African-American and Hispanic communities because they are disproportionately unvaccinated at a greater rate. You follow that? Uh, they are at greater risk of losing their jobs because they come into the whole situation disproportionately unvaccinated. And the court is having none of it. Uh, and here's a couple of sentences from the court's opinion. Uh, plaintiff's equal protection claim fails because they have not shown that the orders, in this case the, the mayor's orders, uh, target a protected class uh, or are not rationally related to a legitimate government interest. To the extent that the orders disproportionately affect the African-American or Hispanic communities, this disparity can be remedied by those individuals getting vaccinated. Another mic drop time, right? Get out of here, not buying into that argument. Now, uh, to an interesting argument that is being made. Most vaccination, uh, mandatory vaccination rules have a religious exemption. Uh, and that is, in an employment situation, that is almost certainly going to be mandated by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act uh, that has all sorts of religious freedom protections in it. But there are some vaccine mandates that don't have a religious exemption. Remember, let's go back to Jacobson again versus Massachusetts. There was no relig religious exemption then. But that was 116 years ago. Uh, we've had a lot of religious discrimination lawsuits, a lot of development of First Amendment religious freedom rights uh, since 1905. And indeed, we have probably 99% of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence about religion has been since 1905. Is, is it still good law? Uh, Jacobson's failure to carve out a religious exemption. And the, uh, the most important case here uh, is one that's called Jane Doe's 1 through 6 versus Mills. This is a mandate from the state of Maine. Uh, and the, the, the important decision here was decided on October 19th. Uh, and uh, on October 19th, a federal 
a trial court in Maine in an opinion that later was allowed to go into effect and affirm basically by a federal appeals court, uh, upheld the vaccine mandate even though it did not have a religious exemption. And the plaintiffs in that case made, I thought, a really well-toned argument. Uh, and they didn't argue solely that the Constitution, the First Amendment, freedom of religion guarantees in the Constitution, didn't argue solely that that requires a carve-out for religion. They instead focused on the fact that Maine's rules did have a carve-out for people with a physical health risk from vaccination. And their argument was, if you treat us differently, those of us who have a religious exemption and those of us who have a medical exemption, uh, that violates religious freedom rights. That discriminates on the basis of uh, religion. And and because it discriminates on the basis of religion, uh, then you don't have the rational basis test applying you have strict scrutiny applying. So how does this fare in the main courts? And then I'm going to get to the Supreme Court, which makes it all the more interesting. Uh, the, uh, in Maine's courts, that argument doesn't fly. It doesn't have legs. Uh, and I'm quoting from one of the court's opinions. Maine's rule offers only one exemption, and that is because the rule itself poses a physical risk to some who are subject to it. In other words, if you force someone to get vaccinated and, uh, and they have a physical disability that is inconsistent with vaccination, it's the rule itself that puts them at a physical risk. And the, back to the court. Carving out an exception for those people to whom that physical risk applies furthers Maine's interests in a way that carving out an exemption for religious objectors would not. Strict scrutiny does not apply here. Back to the rational basis test, right? But even if it did, the plaintiffs still have no likelihood of success. Why? Even if it got strict scrutiny, and I'm quoting, stemming the spread of COVID-19 is unquestionably a compelling interest. So I told you it gets interesting with the Supreme Court because the plaintiffs in this case apply to the court for an emergency stay uh, of the lower court's judgment. And you've seen a lot of press about these emergency stays, uh, particularly in the Texas abortion rule case where the Supreme Court refused uh, to, uh, to stay the application of the Texas law that uh, outlaws abortion. Uh, And uh, there was a similar request for an emergency stay in this case. And it ended up going to the full Supreme Court where we got a four to three to two, uh, excuse me, a four, let me get the count right here, a four to two to three decision from the Supreme Court. Okay, what in the world does that mean? It means you have four judges who voted one way, three judges who concurred with the result, but not the rationale of the four judges who voted one way. So you have seven judges who are in the majority. Uh, Excuse me, six judges who were in the majority. I can't believe I can't get this count right because you have two who concurred. So four who voted one way, two who concurred. So you have six judges who are voting one way for one result. And then you have three who want the case to come out the other way, three dissenting judges. So what do the four judges say? The four judges just basically say, Uh, we don't want to consider this case on an emergency basis, and they really don't have too much rationale behind that. Where it gets interesting is with the two concurring judges. By the way, the four judges are the three so-called liberal judges. I always rankle at that because one of the so-called liberal judges is really a moderate, but he's called a liberal judge. 
So the three liberal judges and the chief justice are make up the four judges who just don't want to hear the case. That's the end of the issue. Um, and two judges, and these are two of the conservative justices, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh, who concur in that result, but for a different reason. They don't want to get to the merits of anything. They say, look, we just don't think this case is appropriate for an emergency stay. And then you have three dissenting judges who say, we think this case came out wrong. And these are the three probably most conservative justices on the court on any issue, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And those three judges want to carve out a religious exemption uh, from mandatory vaccination. These are three judges who give an incredibly expansive view to religious freedom. Uh, and these three judges thought the absence of a religious exemption was unconstitutional. So uh, what that ends up meaning is no stay is granted. The rule goes into effect. Can the Supreme Court eventually review the decision later on and uh, come down on the merits? Yes, it can. What will those two judges in the middle, Barrett and Kavanaugh, end up saying? Will they end up siding with the three dissenting judges? Maybe they are both pro-religion judges. We don't know, uh, but uh, we shall see. That's a matter to be decided down the road. Um, okay, next argument that you see, uh, and you see this one in California, and it kind of crept up to Oregon, but this seems to be a West Coast argument rather than a nationwide argument. And that is that there are provisions of international law that make a mandatory vaccination program illegal. Uh, and the two most frequently cited provisions of international law are the Nuremberg uh, Code. And uh, this is a code that uh, many nations agreed to in the wake of uh, World War II. And uh, the code prevents uh, experimenting, uh, involuntary human experimentation. And as the argument goes, uh, since the United States has adopted this, albeit not by a statute or anything like this, was party to the Nuremberg Code, uh, that uh, it applies to uh, vaccination programs because uh, COVID-19 vaccines are medical experimentation. There's a factual hurdle to cross there, obviously, right, as to whether or not they are medical experimentation, but that's what the argument is. Um, there's also citation to a treaty that no, it wasn't really a treaty. It was kind of a, a set of rules agreed to in Helsinki uh, by doctors from all over the world uh, that say essentially the same thing. Uh, we're not going to have involuntary medical experimentation. Well, so far, there's only been one court that has really come at that issue uh, head on. It was a decision from October 18th, uh, and it came out of Oregon, a case called Johnson versus Brown. Uh, and uh, the court ends up rejecting the argument. And I'll read a couple of sentences here. Uh, plaintiffs uh, offer, by the way, these are employees, plaintiffs offer no international law materials that vaccine mandates, particularly during a worldwide pandemic, for an FDA-authorized vaccine that has undergone significant clinical trials and safety evaluation is considered a forced or coerced medical experiment. So that's like slam dunk on all counts, right? Uh, the, the court is saying, uh, look, a vaccine, uh, a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, wasn't even thought of. There, there was nothing in the Nuremberg Code about vaccinations in general or the Helsinki Agreement. Uh, and even if there was, uh, fact is, says the judge, uh, COVID-19 vaccines are not experimental. Uh, they've been subject to some of the most extensive testing of any medical product in history. They are not experimental. And then 
The court uh, goes on to say, this language is going to seem pretty familiar to you, plaintiffs remain free to choose whether to get the vaccine. The vaccine orders give the individuals the choice either to get a vaccine or to apply for a religious or medical exemption or to find employment elsewhere, including potentially in another state. Oh, my goodness. Not just get out of town, but get out of state. This is a federal court judge who is writing this. And he concludes with, plaintiffs have not shown that the international community collectively condemns this type of choice as the type of coercion that falls within the prohibition of the Nuremberg Code. So that argument, unsuccessful, uh, it's being raised in a number of different pending cases around the country. But the first one to go to judgment, it was not successful. Uh, next argument is one that originated in Oregon. We had a, a lawyer in Oregon who kind of uh, flits around on the outside of the labor community in Oregon who uh, became somewhat notorious in Oregon for making statements that, a, that vaccine mandates were, uh, and he said it flatly, a violation of the U.S. Constitution and, uh, and the Oregon Constitution and Oregon law, uh, and, uh, and filed a number of lawsuits on behalf of employees who seem to be relying on this advice. And uh, his first case ended up getting decided in court, I think it was on October 7th, and one of his arguments, and I think it may have been the main argument, although he raised many of them, was a free speech argument. And that's an interesting one, right? That's now being raised in some California cases as well. And the free speech argument was that forcing someone who disagreed with vaccination to be vaccinated by putting their job at risk violates their free speech rights. And the federal court, uh, or excuse me, this was a state court, uh, was having none of it, uh, none of that argument. And this is, a uh, while it's a state trial court, uh, the judge who decided this was a pro tem judge who'd actually been a court of appeals judge and Supreme Court judge in Oregon for decades. So it wasn't, you know, the run-of-the-mill DWI lawyer who we scooped up off the streets to hear this case. This was someone who know his, knew his stuff. And uh, here's what he says about the free speech argument. Nothing prohibits these employees, these were a collection, I think, of 33 Oregon state troopers. None of them prohibits from saying anything they want about COVID-19 vaccinations. Plaintiffs, though, argue that their refusal to get vaccinated itself is inextricably intertwined with deeply held political, social, philosophical, and religious beliefs, and thus is protected expression. Plaintiff's argument incorrectly assumes that their refusal to get vaccinated is expressive conduct protected by the free speech guarantees of the state constitution. So in other words, no free speech implications to refusing to get vaccinated. I'm almost done here, okay? Bear with me. I know I'm running a little bit long, but I've only got a, uh, really three more issues, one of which is the important one, as I saved to last, I'm not sure why, which is bargaining. Um, but uh, the first of the three issues is the contracts clause. Uh, well, uh, the federal constitution and every state constitution I know, but I haven't read all of them for this purpose, uh, has a clause that prohibits government from impairing the obligation of contract. And in a, a case decided a couple of weeks ago, October 15th, involving Massachusetts Corrections Officers Union, uh, the union made the argument that, hey, we've got this collective bargaining agreement. It covers terms and conditions of employment, including discipline. Uh, and the executive order from the governor that we be vaccinated impairs that contract and thus is a constitutional violation. 
And uh, the court ends up rejecting the argument and says, look, even if you could show a substantial impairment of your contract, and you're not able to show that because this executive order is just simply one condition of employment and doesn't get at a core provision of the collective bargaining agreement and doesn't uh, undermine your collective bargaining rights. But you haven't shown that. But even if you could, the claim under the contracts clause wouldn't succeed because mandatory vaccination is, and I'm quoting, a reasonable and appropriate way to advance the significant goal of stopping the spread of COVID-19 in the state prison system. And what the court is doing there is uh, it's bootstrapping on uh, a long-established principle, and that is that contract rights are not absolute. Uh, a government can impair contract rights if there is a sufficient and very important and overriding governmental need. And the court is saying that is present when we're talking about uh, a a pandemic, a pandemic that by this point had just uh, killed over 700,000 people in the United States. Uh, the next argument is, and, and we haven't heard this one in a while, but it's every once in a while you'll see a decision on it, and that is that the Food and Drug Administration statutes that control uh, the emergency use authorization of any medical product such as vaccination uh, that they have a provision that says that the FDA have to, has to make sure that individuals who are given this medical product, in our case a vaccine, that, that individuals know that uh, they are free not to take that product, in this case gets vaccinated. And so employees have jumped on that most prominently in a case you'll see in the table called Houston Methodist Hospital, have jumped on that and said, well, that means an employer can't compel uh, vaccination. And courts that have looked at that, again, unanimously have said um, that those emergency use authorization statutes don't apply to employers. And also they have said, a vaccine mandate doesn't force you to get vaccinated. just means you can't work at that particular job. That's what the judge in the Houston uh, Methodist case said. Nobody's forcing you to get vaccinated. You just can't work at this hospital if you are unvaccinated. Then save the best for last. Uh, and the most interesting from a legal standpoint, uh, bargaining. Does an employer have to bargain over a vaccine mandate. And of course, a vaccine mandate, uh, one that ends with uh, discipline or discharge, that clearly concerns a working condition that would normally be negotiable. Uh, and what is so vexing right now is we have decisions going in three directions on whether a vaccine mandate is negotiable. Uh, the earliest uh, decision that came in came in from California's Public Employment Relations Board in a case you'll see in the table that's called um, AFSME versus the uh, Regents of the University of California. We think of it as the Regents case. And in the Regents case, California's uh, Public Employee Labor Board ends up ruling that the decision to have a mandatory vaccination program is not negotiable. That is a management right. But that the effects of the decision are negotiable or can be negotiable, some of the effects. What would the effects be? What happens if you don't comply? Are you disciplined or does something else happen? Are you, do you get to be vaccinated on on-duty time? Uh, who is who is paying for the vaccination, if there are any costs associated with it? Uh, is there some sort of incentive program, uh, extra time off or extra pay for employees who are vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera? Those would all be negotiable effects. Now, one thing that the Labor Board in California did not do that uh, is very unfortunate is California's labor statute, 
uh, and this one is, uh, actually this one I don't think was under the Meyer Milius Brown Act. It was one, under one of California's other statutes, but uh, bargaining statutes. But they all have an exception that allows the employer to unilaterally implement a decision even though there are negotiable effects if two conditions are met. Normally, by the way, effects bargaining has to precede implementation. Uh, but there is this exception. And the exception says if these two conditions are met, the employer can go ahead and implement before it has completed effects bargaining. What are the conditions? Number one, there's an emergency. And number two, the employer continues to bargain over the effects post-implementation. And the Labor Board in California didn't decide whether the emergency exception applied. Why not? Because it found that the employer hadn't properly raised that in the case. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't have an answer to that ultimate question, and that's going to be really, really important. Now, uh, I told you the, uh, the cases go three ways. So that's one way, right? Decision not negotiable, effects negotiable. The second way is it's negotiable. This is our most recent case. This comes out of a state trial court uh, judge in uh, Illinois. And this is uh, decided, I believe the decision came down uh, when I, I am recording this on a Tuesday, the decision came down yesterday on Monday, so on November 1st. Um, uh, the trial court judge uh, ends up, he's, he's considering some motions for temporary restraining orders, and he ends up deciding to issue a restraining order uh, prohibiting the city from implementing his vaccine mandate on December 31st, pending the negotiations and eventually in Chicago, because of the structure of Illinois law, the arbitration process. Um, he ends up deciding not to restrain the city's vaccination registration program. And his rationale is, look, there's no huge harm for the vaccine Ra uh, registration program because employees provide all sorts of medical information to employers. They do it when they hire on and they do it periodically uh, over the course of their employment if they have workers' comp injuries or whatever it might be. But there is what courts call irreparable injury if I were to let people be forced to be vaccinated or give up their jobs because uh, you can't, uh, the judge's words were, you can't undo a vaccine. Now, I, I will tell you, there are some opinions that go the other way on whether forcing someone to get vaccinated or give up their job constitutes irreparable opinions, or, or excuse me, irreparable injury because uh, there are, are judges who say, you know, you can, there is no irreparable injury because you can always appeal your termination from the job and you can get back pay. And back pay, we have held in other cases, fully compensates an employee for the loss of their job. Therefore, no irreparable injury that you need to have to get a TRO. There are courts that go the other way, but this Illinois court says, uh, there is irreparable injury with a vaccine mandate, so I'm going to hold that in abeyance pending the arbitration process. And we don't know how long that is going to take. Okay, so now we, we've got two parts of this three-legged stool described. You've got California, decision, not negotiable. Effects, negotiable. You have Chicago, it seems to all be negotiable. And then you have New Jersey, where the Court of Appeals in New Jersey that said nothing is negotiable. And you actually have a trial court decision in New York that says pretty much the same thing. Uh, there are indications in some Massachusetts cases that say 
pretty much the same thing. And this may well end up being one of these rare situations where you have different decisions, ultimately probably from labor boards, in different states as to whether or not something is negotiable. Uh, so right now, we just simply don't know the ultimate answer to the question of whether a vaccine mandate is negotiable. So, folks, uh, thank you for bearing with me through this very, very long discussion of uh, mandatory vaccination programs. I hope this answers questions that you, your employees, or your members may have. Feel free to distribute that uh, litigation table that you'll find with the show notes. Distribute it as far and wide as you possibly can. I don't care. Actually, I want you to because you know where I'm coming from on this if you've listened to my podcast for the last couple of months. We want employees who are making this very, very important decision, this decision that affects their careers, their families, maybe even their health. We want employees to have the most accurate information about every aspect of vaccination litigation. Uh, we want them to know where courts are. And I'll tell you right now, 50 to zero in terms of the constitutionality and legality of a vaccination program, employees need to know that that's the result. What I tell people when I counsel them on this is, don't put any stock in a court holding that a vaccination program is illegal. The ultimate solution here is not going to be in court. It is either going to be a political solution or one, more rarely, that you can achieve through the bargaining process. So that's it for the November edition of First Thursday. I uh, hope you, uh, that you'll join me in December. I promise it won't be vaccines all day, all the time in December. With that, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. This is Will Aitchison signing off. <music>